0: chapter 2. That's right, we're into chapter 2. No longer in chapter 1. Been there a while. That's good. Want to lay a deep, big foundation for the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Excited to finally get into chapter 2. Also excited to have Kendrick do some teaching next week. Uh, We don't announce who teaches each Sunday because we believe that proclamation of the Word is more important than who proclaims it. So we don't want to make a big deal on who's teaching, who's not teaching. Uh, but some of you may have noticed it's been a while since Kendrick's been able to teach, and uh, uh, that's by his request. He hasn't been in trouble, he hasn't been grounded or undergoing discipline or anything like that. Uh, he's been really busy with seminary and uh, teaching some denials, and uh, we're thankful for the opportunities we have to do things with other churches and to be trained theologically. Uh, And so he asked to have a few months off to focus on those things. I'll do something very similar later this year. Uh, Take some time off from teaching on Sundays to focus on some other projects for the crossing. And um, it's the beauty of having a team. It's the beauty of not building a church on one personality. It's the beauty of having more than one guy who can rightly divide the word of truth. And so we're thankful for the guys that God has sent us. And we're asking God all the time, send us more guys who can handle the word of God. And teach our people the scriptures so that we can be the people of the book. Mark 2, I want to spend some time this morning walking through the text and then make some applications from the text. And what I hope and pray and ask the Spirit to help us to see this morning is that Jesus and his gospel is the great problem solver for our great problem. And eventually all of our lesser problems. So, notice the intentionality there. Jesus is the great problem solver for our great problem, singular. And eventually, all of our lesser problems, plural. Mark 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Never saw anything like this. Father, we are amazed at the person, the work of Jesus. There's no one like him. There's no one ever has been like him or will be like him. He has power and authority and might to do amazing things that did not end, Father. We thank you it did not end 2,000 years ago. His power is here today. So, Father, we ask for the very power of the Spirit of God to move in this place, in our hearts, right now. That there would be spiritual, supernatural things going on as you're doing deep work in us this morning. That we, we won't, Father, that we won't just hear a sermon. Father, help us to hear the Spirit of God. To hear you, to hear your voice, your truth, your grace, your gospel. Come and do this work for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone in this room has problems. Like we bring them with us wherever we go. It doesn't mean that all problems are like really bad problems. Sometimes it's just stuff we have to figure out. God's graciously allowed us to purchase a house that we're going to close on this week, Tuesday. Yeah, that's great. Very excited! And I'd love to s- tell you more of the story. Why we feel like this is the house God wants us to buy in this particular neighborhood. We really feel like God's in this. And um, but now we've got to figure out how to take an already busy life and add to that house renovation, packing, moving, and hopefully get in this house sometime before Christmas. Right, what we're thinking, as well as shepherding my wife well, shepherding our kids well, leading our family well, um, and all the other responsibilities that we have. So it's a problem. It's a good problem, right? You just got to figure it out. You just got to okay, do this on these days and do this on these days. It, it's going to happen. And some of our problems are like that—temporary things. We get it figured out. We get through that season. You know, how do you navigate your family through ball seasons? It's a temporary inconvenience. It's not all of life. Thankfully, or we kill ourselves maybe because it's so hectic and crazy during ball season. But it's only a part of the year. But some problems are much big, big bigger and heavier than that. You know, what what am I going to major in in college, which is really a a smaller question of what am I going to do with the rest of my life as far as a career? Um, Will or who should I marry? Will I get married before 40? Should I change jobs or stick this job out? What is the future of my kids going to look like? Are my kids on pace with other kids? How are my kids fitting in? How are, are my kids heart for Jesus? How are they battling sin? What about my health? How will we take care of ourselves as we get older? How will we take care of our parents as they age? Do I stay in this difficult relationship with this person or do I just bail? Do I have this difficult but necessary conversation with this person or just avoid it? How do I fix this situation that I can't fix? How do I change this person that I can't change? How do I change myself and quit doing the things that I hate to do and start doing the things that I know are right and good. I could literally spend the rest of our time just listing the potential problems that are, that are represented in this room. In every heart, in every mind, in every soul this morning. How is it possible to say that one man and one message can solve all of that? How can that be possible? Well, let's, let's get into the story and begin to walk through that. Because in this story, you have a man with a huge problem. He's paralyzed. Seemingly big problem. Nobody in this room is paralyzed this morning. Nobody has been paralyzed as far as I know. We've never experienced this. But even with his huge problem, you see the grace of God. And that's always true in our problems. If you look, if you have the right perspective, you always see God's grace. And the the grace of God in this man's life are these four friends who care enough for their paralyzed friend to take him to this Man, Jesus, who is quickly becoming famous. Why is he becoming famous? Mark chapter 1. He has uh, another man whose entire ministry is devoted to preparing the way for his ministry, John the Baptist. And John is out there teaching for months and proclaiming that this greater one is coming. And one day, this, this man shows up. Jesus, he's the one. He baptizes him. The Spirit of God descends on him. And a voice speaks from heaven. This incredible occurrence happens. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness where he confronts Satan for 40 days, resists all the temptations, and then he begins to call followers to him and begins to do things that nobody had ever seen. He's casting out demons and telling them to shut up and be quiet, and they are. He's teaching with an authority that no one has ever experienced before. He's healing all manner of diseases and sicknesses. And then last week we looked at, he healed probably the most feared disease of his day, leprosy. Leprosy was akin to having a death sentence, and Jesus even took care of that, even willing to love the leper enough to touch the leper. And word is spreading like wildfire through this entire region. There's a man here doing things we've never seen before. So these four friends, they hear about it. Well, we've got this paralyzed buddy. Let's take him to Jesus. Maybe he can fix him. And so they take off. They put him on a mat and they go to Jesus because he's got this power. They come to a house. It's not Jesus's house. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's more likely Peter's house. And they, there's a problem. We can't get in. It's packed. Well, here's a solution. The roof. Homes in that day were built kind of boxy in shape. Uh, You might think of the adobe type homes out in the west where there would be uh, made out of of layers of wood beams, thatch, and then a a layer of mud across the top of the roof. The mud would harden and dry in the arid, dry environment of that part of the world where eventually you would build steps up the side of your house and you could hang out on the roof like it's a really cool house. I wish we could have these in Louisiana, but we have too much rain. We can't do that here and they would sleep up there, take naps up there, they'd eat meals up there, they'd hang out in the cool of the day with the breeze blowing and and just have life on top of the roof. So they can't get in the house. Let's take him up the side of the house and let's dig a hole through this roof. These four friends care about their friend so much. Notice, Jesus saw the faith in the four friends, not the paralyzed man. He saw their faith. And they care about their friends so much, not only do they believe Jesus can heal, but they're willing to go to extreme measures to get their friend to Jesus. Like tearing a hole in the roof of someone's house. Not just anyone's house, but Peter's house. Not the most emotionally stable of the disciples. Jesus was inside with this packed house, teaching, proclaiming the gospel, he tells us, and all of a sudden they hear a commotion, they hear scratching, eventually dust begins to fall, wood fibers... Uh, thatching begins to fall. Eventually sunlight beams through and there's these four faces looking through this hole that they just made in Peter's roof. They eventually strap their friend on this mat and they lower him down in front of Jesus and Jesus looks at the man seeing his obvious problem. He's paralyzed and saying to the man, rise, take up your mat and go home. That's what you expect him to say. That's what he's been saying. Like, don't let the, your familiarity with the story ruin the shock value. For Jesus to look at this man and not solve what apparently is his biggest problem, but to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Why is he doing that? Now, ultimately, Jesus is doing something that only God has the prerogative and power to do. So it's shocking because he says this to him and doesn't heal him, but it's shocking because Jesus is doing something that only God can do. Ultimately, all of our sins are an offense to God. So you go to a passage like Psalm 51, I didn't put it on the screen, but Psalm 51, David is is praying this prayer of repentance because he's had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and he's had her husband killed Uriah. Eventually, after about a year, Nathan the prophet confronts him, and David repents and writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, David says, O Lord God, against you and you only have I sinned. Wait a second. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the child that was a product of this adulterous affair who ended up dying? What about the rest of their family? How can David say against you and you only have I sinned. Because ultimately sin is an offense against God. Because we're created in His image, to bear His image, to worship Him, love Him, and serve Him. When we fail to do that, it's an affront against the Holy God who made us. Yes, we sin against each other, we hurt each other, we offend each other. Ultimately sin is an offense against God. Ultimately, we need forgiveness from God. Jesus being God in the flesh has the right to say to this man son your sins are forgiven i being god can do this the religious leaders also are correct in thinking in their minds jesus knows what they're thinking again something only god could do they are correct in their minds to think to themselves who does this man think he is only god can do this where does he get off coming in here telling this man he can he's forgiven of his sins and so Mark is introducing something that's going to be very prevalent through chapters two and three that he begins to show us now this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders and it's going to, they're going to end up doing some awful things but in this story they're shocked, their reservation is justified. Who does this man think he is? God? And if he wasn't God, then yeah, they should confront him and call him down. What they don't know is he is God. And he has the right to do this. And so Jesus presents to them this little test or dilemma. Essentially, he says this. You think what I've said is shocking. Maybe even you think what I've said is easy. Like, it's easy to say to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, because nobody can look into his soul, and nobody can look on the ledger of God to see if I've actually done anything. It's just words. Like, nobody knows if his sins really have been forgiven. So it seems as though I've done the easier thing, but... And Jesus is setting them up here to prove I have power to do both. I'm going to heal this man of this incredible disease so that logically, if I can do what seems to be harder, then I've also done what seems to be easier. So Follow the logic. Follow the dilemma he's put them in. I have the power to do both. And so he looks at the man and says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he, he does it. He picks up his mat. This man was paralyzed. Paralyzed. Like nobody here is probably old enough or, or maybe some of you have been sick enough where you've been bedridden for a period of time. But a lot of the, the older people I work with in my hospice job, they'll, get, they'll break a hip or they'll break something and they'll get down and they'll become bedridden for so month, many months. And it, even if we being younger people here, if it happened to us, you would notice that it's, it's hard to recover from that. Your muscles go through a process called atrophy where you don't use them, you begin to lose muscle mass, you lose strength. And so you, being a young healthy person, you become bedridden for a period of time. It takes weeks and weeks to get your strength back. Much harder for an older person much, much harder for a paralyzed person. Like, How does he just do this? Not only does Jesus restore feeling into his nervous system so that he can feel his limbs and his muscles and his body, but he, he does what he always does when he heals. Jesus is not just removing sickness, he's injecting creative power into his body so that instantly the paralysis is gone, strength is in his muscles, he can get up and do something that should have taken months and months and months and months of therapy. Because that's how Jesus heals. He takes away sickness and disease. He injects life and power so that it's as though the illness, the disease had never been there. He's making all things new. See how shocking this is, how jaw-dropping this is. Now you know the reaction of the people in verse 12. They went out before them all, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We, we never saw anything like this. You had to think that maybe even some who were close enough to hear the exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, they left and they think to themselves, you know, he said, sons, your sins are forgiven. And he says, if you think I have power to do that, I'm going to demonstrate I have power to do that by healing this paralytic. So we just saw him raise the paralytic, which means he has power to forgive sins. Like who is this guy? Who is this man? We've never seen anybody with this kind of power and this kind of authority that they're asserting to themselves. The son of man has power to heal a paralytic. Now, son of man is a favorite title Jesus uses for himself throughout the Gospel of Mark. You're going to see it come up again and again and again. And one of the criticisms that you hear about Jesus, and I've even read this in a systematic theology book, is that Jesus never came out in the Gospels and said to the people that he was talking to, listen up everybody, pay attention, I am God, G-O-D, and so some people take that, even this Christian systematic theology book, take that as a criticism against Jesus that he didn't really believe he was God. That was something attributed to him later by his followers. He had no self-awareness understanding of who he was, which is a complete misreading of the New Testament scriptures. Because in places like this, he's clearly doing things that he knew only God could do, asserting that authority for himself. He's clearly giving himself these titles that he knew the Jewish people, knowing their Old Testament, would know what he's saying about himself. And so, Son of Man is an Old Testament title for the Messiah that comes from the book of Daniel. In which Daniel has a vision, in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days who is another figure, another title for God and receives this kingdom which he will rule over all the earth, a kingdom that will never end. Like We're not talking about a man-man. We're not just talking about just the man, rather. We're talking about someone who has divine qualities, divine abilities. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he knows where the Jews would go in their mind. Daniel 7. I know what I'm referring to. I'm saying to you, I am that man who's received that authority. This is a an incredibly bold declaration that Jesus understood who he was. It comes from his lips. I'm healing sins, only God can do that. I'm declaring myself to be the Son of Man in Daniel 7. That I'm God, that I am the Messiah. Mark 2, 1 through 12, a great passage to go to, to to confirm, to prove that Jesus knew who he was, the, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so he declares himself that. He knows that he alone has the power and the desire to solve our greatest problem. Which he alone recognized in the life of this man. And he alone recognizes in all of us. And so in this story, in this room, our greatest problem is sin. Sin is our greatest problem. There's a famous story about G.K. Chesterton, one of the great Christian writers in the 1900s. A local newspaper of his day sent a letter to a collection of writers asking them, what is wrong with the world today? And Chesterton famously responded to them in a letter, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Our biggest problem is sin. We're born with a sin nature. We have a bent towards sin. We have a rebellion where we need to be made alive by Christ. We need need to be made into a new creation, regenerated, saved, forgiven, cleansed. We need to repent, believe the gospel, so that at some point in our life, we become a new person. In theology, we give this a real fancy word called justification. We're in the the courtroom of God, in the the eyes of God. He looks at us, though we are guilty. It's not that we haven't sinned. Oh, we have sinned. Though we are guilty, he says, I declare you justified in my eyes. Not because you've earned it, not because you've done enough good things to, to get it, but because Jesus has come, paid the price for your sins, and you get legal credit for all of the righteous things that he did. So that in my eyes, I see you through the lens of Jesus. You are now just. He justifies the ungodly. That's us. And we come alive in Christ we're regenerated, we're born again, we're born from above, we become new creatures, we're the Holy Spirit, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, we're adopted into the family of God, we're, we're, we're made into a new person. This is justification. It happens at a moment in time in our life. Our biggest problem is that we need that. It's in the summer of 1992. I was uh, with my youth group, we were at Camp Perrin in Arkansas. My youth minister that summer was none other than Scott Bonner. Scott was a whole whopping 19 or 20 years old. I was 15. This is in between my junior and senior year in high school. And I had, as a pastor's kid, I had been there from day one. Like in my mother's womb, I'm going to church. That gets a lot of extra credit for that, right? And I, I was incredibly religious, but that summer the Holy Spirit revealed to me on the night of June 18th that I did not know Jesus Christ, despite all the religious things I had done. Like I could dominate Bible trivia. I could tell you all the stories. I had been to Sunday school. I probably had some perfect attendance years where I got a certificate or a pen. I had um, all kinds of understanding of the rituals and traditions of the church that I could follow to a T. I was a pastor's kid, come on. I had been a part of Royal Ambassadors where I got all kinds of badges for building campfires and pretending to be Boy Scouts. I had sword drill awards that I had received from being able to whip my Bible out and turn to the passage the fast, faster than anybody else and reciting the passage, right? I, was, I knew all the Vacation Bible School songs. I knew all the Vacation Bible School mottos and pledges. I was not a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a Southern Baptist among Southern Baptists. And in the summer of 1992... I came face to face with a holy God who spoke very powerfully to my heart. He said, if you don't repent and believe in my son Jesus and receive life through him, when you die, you will be cut off from me forever. You will spend eternity separated from me. You will spend eternity paying the price for your sins. You will spend eternity suffering for your sins in a place called hell. And by God's grace, that night, I shared that with our youth group. Even had a lady, Charlotte, that's her name, had a lady, we were talking about that last night, who tried to convince me, Jared, you just had some doubts, you're not really lost, you're, come on, look at you, look at your record, and thankfully, God was gracious to save me that night. I came alive in Christ. I became a new person and radically transformed in one night, radically my, my heart desires changed, my loves changed, what I wanted to do changed, my hatred of sin changed. Instead of being this fake person who put on my my preacher kid's mask on Sunday and and impressed everybody and then I did whatever I wanted to do Monday through Saturday. I, I tried to see how much hell I could raise, how much trouble I could get away with, how many boundaries I could push. Instead of being that person any longer, he radically transformed me where I desired him with a greater desire than I desired sin. And your story may not be as radical as that story but at some point in time you were transferred, as Paul said in Colossians 1.13, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. That has to happen. And once that genuinely happens, you are set free forever from the penalty of sin. You're adopted into his family, baptized with the Spirit. God comes to dwell in you as his temple. You move from condemnation to no condemnation, and you are now a co heir with Jesus, forever his as you dwell in Christ, and Christ dwells in you. It is your greatest problem. It is your greatest need. And guess what, guys? It's the same for everyone sitting around you. It's the same for your children and your grandchildren. It's the same for your neighbors and your co workers and your friends. Like my, 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 the needs of my kids, the greatest need of my kid is not to, to watch all the Avenger movies or read all the Harry Potter books or to know all the cultural things that are going on and partake in that. The greatest need for my son is not to be able to hit a great golf ball one day or throw a fastball or, or be able to make a jump shot. As much as I want to teach him all those things and fix stuff around the house, that's not his greatest need. The greatest need of your neighbors and your coworkers isn't for them to think that you're just fun and cool and, and, a, and a nice person to hang around who, who knows all the, the, the good places to drink coffee or the good places to get drinks in town or have good food. The greatest need of everybody in this city, everybody in the world, is to be forgiven of their sins, to be brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ and radically transformed, to become a new person, to spend eternity with Christ and not separated from Christ In Gehenna, hell, that is the greatest need of every single person. And Jesus alone, Jesus alone can solve that. And the bonus is, once he does that, you lose the ability and desire to sin, you become perfect, you have no problems, life is always good, you stay healthy, wealthy, and live happily ever after. Not quite. Our big problem with sin continues. And while we've been set free from the penalty of sin, justification, we've not been set free from the presence of sin. That's waiting for us. But we have received power over sin. And this is what we call sanctification. And so while we do still sin, we now have the power to say no to sin. Guys, I was, uh, I was almost married before I had anybody tell me that. I'm sure people said it when I grew up, but I never remembered hearing it that you don't have to sin. You can say no to sin. So how do we do that? Well, it's the same way, how do we say no to sin? It's the same way when we first came alive in Christ. We turn from sin, we trust in Jesus and his gospel. We see that Jesus is more desirable than sin. We see that the temporary joy of sin is not greater than the joy of obedience. We see that because we love Jesus, we love to do what's right. We see that we don't want to bring shame and reproach in our king because now, as a follower of Jesus, we are a witness to Jesus, whether good or bad, and we want to bring honor and glory to our Savior and King Jesus. We see that Jesus is not only Savior but King. He's in control of our hearts, my heart, my life. Therefore, I don't live to serve myself, but I live to serve my king. And my life is not about establishing my kingdom and my way in this life. It's about establishing his kingdom through my life. And I can willingly, lovingly lay down my life, sacrifice everything for the sake of King Jesus because he first willingly, lovingly came and laid down his life for me. And I have this heart desire that he's given me that I want to do that. And when I don't want to do that, a loving father comes and disciplines me and brings me back to the place where I want to do that again. Because I'm his and that's what he does. Our greatest problem is sin and Jesus alone is the solution for this problem. And probably most of the problems in my life can be solved as I turn from sin and selfishness and turn toward Jesus and faith and repentance, right? Like sometimes sometimes my problem is I want to be in control when God has said, you're not in control. You shouldn't be in control because you're an idiot. I'm in control. I'm all wise. I'm all knowing. Quit trying to be in control and trust me. Quit fighting against me and trust me. Quit taking out your frustrations on other people and hurting them and trust me and let me be in control. Sometimes my problem is I live in fear and anxiety over the future that causes me to hurt others or hurt myself. And God's telling me throughout this book, I've got this, I've got the future. It doesn't mean I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm going to do everything. I'm not going to tell you what's coming, but you can trust me because I'm always working for your good. I'm always working for your good. The Father says, always, always, always working for your good. And you could trust in me in such a deep and strong way that we can actually, I can actually live free from fear, anxiety, and worry. Like that's possible. Plus, most of what I waste time on in fear and anxiety and worry never happens anyway. Ever. Sometimes my problem is I'm not content with who I am or where I am or what I can do. And so I'm always working, working, working to prove myself to others, to prove myself to God. I'm worth saving, God. I'm a good person. I'm successful. I'm smart. I'm fun or cool. I'm athletic. I'm worthy to be your friend. And I'm working so hard to prove myself I don't really know who I am. So I can't truly love people or let people love me because I don't know who I am in Christ. Because I'm placing my identity in things that I can do and things that I can prove to other people instead of resting in who Christ says that I am. So my problems come because my failure to believe in my identity that I have in Christ, my failure to believe in the gospel that sets me free from some of these things. And you can think through other examples of how our own battle with sin and failure to trust Jesus and his gospel causes us to sin and causes problems in our life that could simply be solved. through repentance... And faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ again. Sometimes our problems are you problems. The problem is us. And it's Jesus and His gospel that can change us. Now, often we struggle to see this because we, we have lost sight of who we were before Christ and we've lost sight of who we are apart from Christ. We walk with Jesus for a while and we start to see all the good things that we're able to do because of Jesus and silently and, and deadly self-righteousness begins to creep in. And we quickly began to think much of ourselves and think less of other people who aren't here today. Pfft, I'm here. It's not even Easter. I'm here. What's wrong with these other people? I'm part of a church plant. I mean, how... Gangster's that. We're doing everything stripped down and crazy and. These other Christians are doing it easy out here. Look how much of the Bible I've already read this year. I've already made it through Leviticus. Look at the size of my theological brain. I can say three and four-syllable theological words and know what they mean. And we forget that before Christ are apart from Christ. Spiritually, we are the paralytic on the mat. Completely helpless. Can do nothing for ourselves. Unable to do anything until Jesus intervened, forgave him, cleansed him, and gave him life. We can never lose sight of the fact that all we have earned is hell, all we deserve is hell. And we have never and will never do anything to earn any aspect of our salvation. Any aspect of the righteousness that God freely gives us through Jesus. Every breath is a gift. Every day is a gift. Every promise that God will eternally secure for us is a gift of his grace. Everything. Nothing we can take credit for. And part of our problem is we lose sight of that and think somehow we have earned something. Somehow we deserve something. Somehow now we have the right for something. We don't have none of that. It's all a gift of His grace. And so we live constantly in gratitude, desperate for His grace. But some problems that are in this room this morning are not the result of our sins, but it's sins that we have suffered at the hands of others. It might be directly someone's targeted us, someone's come after us to hurt us. Maybe we got caught up in the line of fire, of destructive behavior. Uh, my dad's father was killed by a drunk driver when he was 12. My dad's older brother was killed by a drunk driver when I, the year I was born. That happens. Um, children are born with sickness and illness that just happen. Nothing you can do to prevent it. This month is Autism Awareness Month and they still have no idea what causes autism. Just... It just seems to happen. If your company goes out of business. Sometimes our problems or situations are out of control. And they happen to us. Now, first recognize this. While those problems are big, they're not as big as the problems. Don't lose sight of that already. The fact that we are a sinner and need a savior. The paralytic's biggest problem was not his paralysis, but that he was a sinner. And Jesus alone solves that. But, but, Jesus also will eventually solve all of our lesser problems and i cannot emphasize enough the word eventually jesus alone will eventually solve all of our lesser problems you see we're headed to a day when all the problems that we can't fix all of the issues that weigh us down will be no more they'll be gone We're always headed to a better day. Like this should mark us as distinct in our culture that is filled with pessimism and negativity. There's a lot of people that are convinced we're about to have another civil war in our country. Facebook, social media, news, it's just negative pessimism, negative pessimism. And we as believers can say, it's not always going to be this bad. We are headed to a better day. One day all this is going to be gone. It's going to get better. Yeah, that means we need to buckle down and pray and work hard to make things better now. But, but we know one day when Jesus returns, one day all things will be made new. One day all of creation will experience what this paralytic experience. Get up and rise. Be made new. And it's, it's so amazing that the Apostle Paul, whose, whose language feels half of the New Testament, whose language is so d- deep and rich and thick, that Bible scholars and theologians still marvel at what he wrote. It's so amazing what's coming. Paul doesn't have the words for it when he sees it. I, I can't even write about this. It's that mind-blowing where we're headed. This is what we call glorification. So we have been saved, set free from the penalty of sin, that's justification. We are being saved, set free from the power of sin, that's sanctification. And one day we will be saved, set free from the presence of sin, <laughs> That's glorification. Like one day, we're going to get this body that's going to be glorified that will never age or wear out. You'll never have to take another aspirin or ibuprofen. Like right now, my hands hurt. I'm feeling them when I clap, especially from running this floor stripper in our our house that we're buying yesterday. Stripping up this wood floor, like this jackhammer for wood floors. One day, my hands will never hurt from doing anything ever again. One day, you'll never be tired. You'll never wake up walking like an old man early in the morning because your your joints and your bones are creaking and aging. One day, you'll never uh, get exhausted. You'll never have allergies. You'll you'll never have eyes that can't see. There'll be no cancer or heart disease, no autism or hydrocephalus or special needs or seizures or blindness or deafness or any other physical problem ever. Ever. There'll be no relational issues. We will get along all the time. Like, that's one of the things I look forward to the most. We will always be on the same page. We will always communicate clearly. We will always give each other grace and the benefit of the doubt. We will always give and receive love unconditionally one day. There'll be no more awkwardness. Like, that's part of the fall. It's not a spiritual gift. We joke about it, but it's not really good. There'll be no embarrassing moments, no conflict or relational tension, no racism, no class envy. There won't be an elite group of people ruling over other people. There won't be places you can't go. We'll have the entire new heavens and new earth to explore for all of eternity. Everything you're not seeing right now because we don't have time or money, you'll get to see one day in its glorified form will work, but it'll be without the curse of sin, so it's going to be fun. There'll be no paychecks to worry about, or corporate America to serve, or, or credit card bills or other bills to pay, no mortgages or banks to deal with, no insurance companies to waste money on. There'll be no earthquakes or floods or tornadoes or hurricanes or lightning or thunder. There'll be none of that. No more goodbyes. No more goodbyes. No more death. No more tears. No more pain. No more hurt no more suffering. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote this describing the end of the series, but as you know, with Lewis, he's describing something much greater. And as he spoke, talking about Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Because of Jesus that is where we are headed. And part of Jesus solving all of our problems now is helping us never lose sight of that. Not losing sight of that. Where we're headed. I was walking home last night from Scott's hanging out with him, talking about today. And just just walking into my house, just the sky was gorgeous last night. Clear, crystal clear. I saw Orion's belt and the Big Dipper and Little Dipper. And just just one of those moments. It doesn't happen all the time. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Just, God, you are so big. We are so small. You must laugh at yourself the way we run around thinking everything we do is so important. And our life is just that. It's over. Went home and told Jennifer this. Jennifer, we're we're about halfway through, honey. No? Another 30, 40 years, we're done. It's almost over. She was not encouraged. us trying to help her to see how big God is, how small we are, and, and how we can't lose sight of that. How, how big this plan is he has for us. And so we go hard, go crazy hard after everything he's truly created us to do that will last forever. Because everything that we get caught up in and worried about now is so temporary. It's so fleeting. One day it will be no more. And we have to believe that because the one thing Jesus does not promise us is that he will take care of our problems by removing them. He, he doesn't promise us. I don't care what you turn on TV and watch. You hear somebody say, with you know, big hair and fancy suits. He does not promise to take the problems away. Yes, he healed the paralytic. He healed a lot of people in those three years of ministry, especially around Galilee. Some, some scholars think that there was virtually no sickness, no death, Nothing around that region. But guess what? Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. All those people died. They got sick again. Lazarus rose from the dead, Lazarus had to die twice. Thanks. You know, imagine going through that again. The purpose was not for Jesus to solve everybody's problems forever, but to give everyone a taste of what's to come. This is where we're headed. This is what my kingdom is going to look like. And for all of us, we're going to have to endure and persevere through some heavy and hard stuff before we get there. That is life in a sin cursed world. So, how do we endure situations we can't fix? And a God, who's all wise, all good, who loves us far more than we can realize, our, our Father. Who, who knows everything, situations that he has ordained for us to walk through. He has ordained for us to walk through. How do we endure? We trust our Father. We trust his character and his nature. We believe that he truly knows what is best for us and good for us because he's working things out. He's accomplishing things that we have no idea are going on. None. All we feel is the pain in front of us. And some people will give their entire life making decisions simply for pain avoidance. Just get me out of the pain. Get me out of the hurt. But there is a purpose in the pain and there are aspects of our sanctification, aspects of our character that can only be developed and seen in the pain. In the valley. And I'm not even going to tell you that oh one day it's going to all make sense because i would be lying to you. I don't know that. One day, we don't necessarily understand it better by and by. We don't know that we're going to get to heaven and God's going to give us like a a report, but here's why he went through all that. We may never know. Probably when we get there, we're not going to care. It doesn't matter anymore. And so we endure because we trust our Father with all aspects of our lives. We can endure because our Father has not left us alone. We can endure because we know we are headed to a time and a place where problems are, are going to be done away with. We, and, and we endure because our Father has not left us alone. We, he has left His body. He has left other believers who know these truths, who are filled with His Spirit, who not only have the ability to walk with us, to carry these burdens with us, but they, they actually desire, willingly, lovingly desire, to, to wrap arms around each other And and say, let's do this together. You're not alone. Let's go together through this. Like, Like we feel that way about each other. You don't have to walk alone. Why? Because Jesus came and he walked alone to Calvary. And he bore our sins alone so that he could give himself for us so that we never have to be alone. He went to the cross alone. He rose from the dead alone. He ascended into heaven alone so that he could fill the earth with his body, his hands, his feet, his arms, and his legs. And none of us would ever have to be alone. Go back to our passage one more time. Jesus asked them, which is harder? To tell a paralytic man, you've been forgiven. or to raise a paralytic man up and say get up, rise and, and go home which is harder. And, and to this, the sight of the people it seemed obvious it's much harder to raise a paralytic than to tell him his sins are forgiven only Jesus knew what it would cost to say to that man your sins are forgiven only Jesus knew that was actually the harder thing. And even now, in Mark chapter 2, the cross is looming before him. That Jesus would endure what he endured so that we would never have to endure it to solve our greatest problem and to give us hope and strength in each other as we walk through our lesser problems. So a couple of thoughts This morning as we close, do you see your sinful heart as your greatest problem? Do you see your battle with sin as your greatest battle? Do you see that Jesus alone is sufficient to set you free from the penalty of sin? To give you power over sin until one day you are set free from the presence of sin? Do you see all other problems as lesser than your greatest problem? Do you see Jesus as ultimately, eventually the solver of all these lesser problems? Do you see what Jesus has provided to help you endure these lesser problems? Do you trust him? Do you have faith to pray for those problems to be solved with a miracle? Do you have faith to trust your father to persevere you through these problems if the miracle never comes? We're going to, I'm going to pray in a few minutes and, and then we're going to have a time of reflection, repentance. Just to think about how the Spirit of God has spoken to you and to respond in repentance and faith. And then when you're ready, come and receive the, the bread and the juice. And, uh, and then we'll share in this joyous meal of what he's made possible through this amazing sacrifice. But uh, at the end, I want you to be thinking about this. Because at the end of our gathering, we often, sometimes we'll pray over someone who's going through something or about to go through something or, or what have you. But at the end of our time of singing today, I want to open it up to, to anyone who, who wants to receive prayer because of something you're going through. Um, just, just a problem, something you're facing, that, that you need the body of Christ to love on you and minister to you. And so uh, after the last song, Scott and the guys will keep playing. And I'll come forward and just invite you to come. And, and it's not going to be me praying for you. It's going to be the body of Christ gathering around each other and praying for each other. It's not that anything can happen here that can't happen out there. Nothing magical about this. But while we're together, this one time a week. If you need the body of Christ to love you, to minister to you, if you want to share that problem, if you don't want to share that problem, we just want to to take time to, to lift each other up and pray for each other. So be thinking about that as we respond to worship today. Father, we're so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful for what you make available through your great, loving, willing sacrifice. We're so thankful for where we're headed. And in the middle of just messy, yucky, difficult things, we know it's not always going to be like this. And not only are you one day going to wipe away every tear and take away everything to be afraid of and death will be no more and hell and and Satan will be no more and sin will be no more, but, but you graciously give us everything we need to endure what we have to endure to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, to face challenges and obstacles to our our faith. You give us each other. You reveal your truth to us. We're just grateful. So help us respond today in repentance and faith. Help us to see that we're not alone. And help us to rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.